going to be primarily coming out of Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, and we're going to dig in that, and then we're going to switch over to 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 12, and we're going to plow through that if you follow along. So, but I would like to begin with prayer, because that's how we begin, because quite honestly, if he doesn't show up, this really ain't worth it. So let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. Uh, We thank you for giving us your scriptures, and as we come as a family around your scriptures now, let us receive them. Let us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be transformed by them. Let us, by the reading of your word and the teaching of your word, know you better. We ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So I realize that in our day and age, in our culture, it is much more prevalent that we highlight the differences uh, between each other, because that's how we categorize things, right? One way that we make sense of the world is we fit it into nice, neat categories, and then things make sense, and the way you kind of play that game is you see what's different, and you see what's similar, and you kind of fit everything in nice boxes, and then your world kind of makes sense. Uh, And our culture predominantly divides over differences, but I would contend that we are far more similar in humanity than we are different, even down to the basic things. Like, we all need food, right? So the procuring of food is central to the human existence. We all feel pain, and I would say that we all praise things reflectively. No one ever taught you how to stand up and cheer for what you liked. There was no lesson on how to give praise to something amazing, right? You just knew it inside of you, and across all cultures, this is what happens. We see something awesome, we see something amazing, and we stand and cheer, and we give it our approval. This will happen in many cities across America and around the world today as grown men and women will put face paint on and put their favorite players' jerseys on and will walk into stadiums with other people that think like they do and will cheer and will yell and will scream and be very happy and very motivated. But I will contend it will pale into comparison if you go to any of the ball fields where somebody's child is playing. The people watching in the stands at those games is way better than what happens. If you're watching the game, you are missing the action. I don't care if it's a five-year-old soccer game or a high school football game. Just take a few moments to look at the stands because you will know whose kid just made that play. You will know. I don't care if little Timmy shanks it off his ankle and it hits some defender's head and then hits the referee and then hits the crossbar and goes in, that cheering section is going nuts. The the moms and dads are like running on the field. There's tears. There's people cheering and crying. Like the dad has his phone out looking for how do you sign a soccer scholarship and what premier kid should my kid play? Like his whole future's planned out now. Timmy is going to be a a college soccer all-star and play in the greatest club in Europe. And that's rational in that moment. Like Timmy's dad sees no problem with that. Like that's, that's what's happening. Oh, let a referee make a bad call. Let that poor referee that's probably making 20 bucks referee in that high school football game, let him call holding on your son or your daughter. Oh, that referee is dead to you. (laughs) Dead. The level of passion, and there's no parenting class on that. No one taught you to be that way. It just is. When we get a great meal or great service at a restaurant, we leave a positive review. We give compliments to the chef. We will line up to give people money 
to go to a concert where a musician motivates us or moves us and we'll sing with other people and we will praise that creation of music. We will pay money to get into museums to see great works of art. Nobody taught us to appreciate greatness. It's woven into the very fabric of our being because when we appropriately respond to those great feats, those great works of art, we put them in their proper context as extraordinary. This is not normal plane of existence stuff. This is extraordinary. And when I see something extraordinary, I react appropriately. And this is why millions of people worship Jesus. Because they believe that he's done what no one else can do. They believe that when he created this whole universe that we see originally, he called it good, and by good he means perfect. And then you and I entered. And it became considerably less perfect as we wounded creation, and we wounded each other, and we walked away from God's perfect plan, and we continue to do that every day. And because we corrupted innocence, and because we hurt each other, God's prized creation, we stand correctly sentenced to spiritual death, which is a fancy way of saying we're separated from God for eternity. But God, unwilling that this would be the permanent arrangement, sends Jesus. Jesus comes down from heaven, lives life as a man. Ultimately, the last three years of his life is murdered, and he ends up dying a physical death on the cross, which is the spiritual death that you and I should have paid. Instead of us being separated forever, he's murdered, put in the ground, comes back, and now you and I get to know him forever if we agree that he is who he says he is, that he is our savior. And this is why Christians worship Jesus, because he's done what nobody else could do. Scripture tells us we were dead. We were hopeless. There was no way that once we corrupted perfection, we could put it back together. Our destiny was sealed as apart from him. But in his mercy and goodness, he writes the ship, and at great cost to himself, but great benefit to us, we now get to know him. And since nobody else could do that, Christians say God alone is worthy of worship, not praise. Because praise, we stand, we cheer, we clap, we go back to our lives. Worship is your life. Worship causes you to reorient all your priorities. You spend your time, your energy, your resources pursuing whatever it is you worship, which may or may not be God. It can be a feeling, it can be a person, it can be a, a possession, it can be an experience. Now, we would claim that whatever you worship, if it's not God, is by its very definition inferior, but God isn't necessarily your object of worship, but he should be, because he is literally the greatest good that has ever existed, and literally did what nobody else could do. And in Christianity, we have great unity on this. In Christianity, this is something in which virtually all people who call themselves Christians agree on. God alone is worthy of worship. What we don't have great unity on is what happens next. What does that worship look like? And I think that's an amazing question. Whether you agree that Jesus is who he says he is or whether you're still undecided, I think it's a great question to ask. If you're still undecided, I think it's very intellectually responsible to say, okay, hypothetically, let's say I do agree with you that Jesus is our savior. What does my life look like next? I, I think it's very responsible to say, hey, before I walk through that door, what's on the other side? 
And I believe that for those of us that have walked through the door, it's very intellectually responsible for to ask, what is the appropriate reaction for the greatest goodness that have ever existed? How do I know that I am effectively worshiping Jesus because not all acts effectively worship Jesus? In Genesis chapter one and two, we see creation in its perfection. Genesis chapter three, we see the fall. And in Genesis chapter four, we see an attempt at worship. Cain brings a gift to give to God and God says, nope, I don't accept your gift. I don't accept your worship. And we bristle at that. What do you mean? What do you mean you don't accept the gift that I give you, God? I am bringing something for you. It is polite for you, God, to accept my gift. You're being impolite. Please accept my gift. But not every response is appropriate in the face of the awesomeness that is God. We struggle with that, but if we put it into human terms, it comes to relief very quickly. If you paid and you went to a fancy restaurant and this superstar chef brings you a meal and lays it out and it is the greatest meal you have ever seen in your life and you pick it up without eating it and throw it on the ground, you have not praised that chef. You have insulted that chef. I don't care what you call it. You say, well, in my culture, that's... No, you have insulted that chef. If you still have trouble with this concept, students, here's what I want you to do. Uh, at your own risk, by the way. I'm not taking your punishment when you do this. But this is what I want you to do. At some point, your history teacher will assign you an essay. Let's call it the French Revolution. Just throwing that out there. You're going to write five pages on the French Revolution. I want you to try a different response. I want you to go home, draw your favorite Pokemon, and hand it to your PE teacher. So I want you, and then when your history essay comes due, go to your history teacher and say, well, I had a different response than what you expected. Instead of writing the five-page essay on the French Revolution, I drew a Pokemon and handed it to Miss Smith. You're getting a zero. And you're going to be talked about in the teacher's lounge. <laughs> and then parents, when your kid gets home, what are you going to do? What have you done? That was not the appropriate response to the request of your history teacher. You are going to punish your kid. Why? Because not every response is appropriate. And in light of God's great goodness, not every response is appropriate. So it makes great sense to ask, well, what does it mean to actually worship Jesus Christ, the risen Savior? What is the appropriate response to his greatness and goodness? The primary method that I've seen and that I've experienced is someone tells you, yes, you now agree that Jesus is who he says he is. You have accepted him as your savior. So now your life is gonna change, but it's gonna be an abundant life because we love that verse. But it's gonna be an abundant life and here's what your abundant life looks like now. We're going to have to get you in a Bible study because it's good to study the Bible. Have you ever prayed? We're going to have to teach you how to pray. All right? So we sing songs. Now you're going to have to learn some songs. Oh, and you're going to have to sin a lot less. So you're going to have some free time on your hands since you've stopped sinning. <laughs> so we're going to fill that up with some more stuff because we've got to talk about how you raise your family. And we've got to talk about how you spend your money. Oh, and your mouth. We'll get to that later, but we're going to talk about that too. And we're going to have to do some things because your life should look different after you know who Jesus is than before. 
And so here are some ways that your life should look different. This is the predominant teaching. You don't think I'm correct? Watch some YouTube videos. And this is not new. This was a teaching that was in Jewish culture at the time of Jesus Christ. He came up for our benefit against this teaching. And you might be surprised to hear he wasn't a big fan. He did not like this teaching. In fact, this was the angriest he got in his ministry was when he encountered this teaching. One particular time, he pulled all of his disciples together and he said, look, the things that are coming out of those guys' mouths, some of them are okay. So do kind of what you're telling, they're telling you to do, but don't you dare act like those guys. Don't you dare behave like them because they heap burdens on people but they themselves don't lift a finger to help. And then he turned to him, to them, the teachers that taught this way. And here's some of the things that he said. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He says, you shut the door in your own face, but way worse than that, you close the door to other people who are trying to know me. You are a barricade. You're not worshiping me. You're actually stopping people from worshiping me. And it gets way worse than that. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over the land and sea to win a single comfort, but when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I would think that being once over a child of hell would be enough. But you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. He is lighting these people on fire. This is not a, yeah, literally. This is not a lecture. This is an evisceration. This is a epic dress down. And it's not even close to over. He continues in verse 25. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. That's hypocrites for a third time in like four sentences, by the way. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will, all, will also be clean. You're filthy. You're disgusting. You've cleaned the outside because you want people to look at you and go, yes. I wish I was more like that person. You've cleaned the outside because you want them to look at you and say, that person is close to God. So I hold them in high estimation because that person is close to God. You've weaponized worship of me to feed your own ego. You don't actually want people to worship me. You want people to worship you. So you've neglected the inside, but guess where God sees? He sees the inside. So God says, I see you for what you are, and I don't like it. And he continues. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones and the dead and everything unclean. In the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I've lost track of the hypocrisy counter by now because he is just going all in. Not only are you dirty, you're dead inside. 
You're a whitewashed tomb, pretty on the outside with all the flowers, but you are full of decay and death on the inside, full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And then he goes all in. We don't necessarily get this insult living in the culture we live in, but the people in first century Palestine would have automatically remembered Genesis chapter 3, where a snake was partially responsible for corrupting the entirety of God's creation. And he calls them, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? He says, you don't work for me. You don't follow me. You don't love me. You don't know me. In fact, you are actively steering people from me. You are actively making it harder for people to know me. How will you escape hell? He summarizes this in Matthew Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, when he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. So we summarize that section by saying, God doesn't think the checklist is a good way to get to know him. God doesn't think the checklist is a good way to worship him, which can be confusing because these people he's going off on memorize more scripture than you and I ever will. They memorized literal entire books of the Bible. They were so dedicated to scripture, they literally wore it in boxes on their bodies. They gave more money to the synagogue than you and I will ever give to the church. And Jesus calls them snakes and vipers and says their worship is in vain. I do not accept this worship. Why? Why is doing these good things not accepted? Because the checklist will always lead to two possible outcomes, and only two. It will lead to pride, first off, because if you're checking all the boxes, you're doing good. And I am prideful that I am doing good. I have met my Christian checklist. I've gone to my Bible study. I have done my prayers. I did my three nice things and all the rest that comes with it. And I am full of pride at the good Christian that I am becoming, forgetting the scriptures that say God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pride leads you away from God, not to him. Why would he institute a system of worship that leads you away and not to? He would not. But then the converse of the checklist is when you're not checking all those boxes and you are now a bad Christian because you're not checking the boxes. You didn't join a small group. You only pray when you need something. And now you feel shame. And when you feel shame, what do you do? You withdraw. So we see that the checklist is not worship. The checklist is a great ticket to leaving Jesus Christ forever. That's why he goes off on it. Because he didn't come here to die to institute a system of worship that drives people away. He did not give his life to chase us off. He gave his life to draw us to him. So this checklist will always be inferior, but that begs the question. So now we know what worship can't look like. It still begs the question, what does actual worship look like? Well, if we just go one chapter back, 
we look where Jesus was getting continually bombarded by these teachers who wanted to trick him. And in Matthew chapter 22, one teacher in particular delivers a question that leads us to the answer unknowingly. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commandments. Bang. This is what he says worship is. Not coincidentally, he says that and then the next chapter goes off on what it's not, right? This question kind of puts that whole section we just went through in context. Because he says, this is worship. You love me, you love others, and yes, my friends, you love yourself. Beating yourself up and telling yourself how bad you are is not a form of worship. He says, love me, love others, love yourself. This is what I ask of you. We don't get to define what we bring to the table. God defines what we bring to the table. God defines what appropriate worship is. And he says, this is appropriate worship. This is the appropriate response to my goodness is love. And we kind of get that. Because love will make you do crazy things. Love will reorient your entire existence. You will do things you never thought you would do all in the name of love. But it still begs the question, what does it look like? The Apostle Paul starts that off in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, now you are the body of the Christ and each one of you is a part of it. So now that you've agreed that God is who he says he is, now that you believe that Jesus is Savior, you have a father, God. You have a family, brothers and sisters. And here's kind of what your family looks like. God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing and helping and guidance and different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. He says, hey, we're a family now. And in this family, God's given you some stuff. He's given you a gift to serve others with. And he's given you a gift. And he's, you're really lucky. He gave you two. And you're really lucky. He gave you three. And he gave you another one. And with these gifts, we all come together and we all serve each other. And those are all good things. But he finishes 12 by saying, and yet, I will show you the most excellent way. So it's good to serve. It's good to do these things. God's given you gifts to do it. But there is a way that is superior to that. And he explains that in quite possibly the second most famous chapter of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So sink into this for a minute. If I can speak every language on the planet and can also speak languages that are only spoken in heaven... I'm amazing. I can do things no one else can ever do. But I don't have love. I'm merely an annoying noise. Probably, I'm probably saying that lightly. A clanging cymbal at 5.30 in the morning is more than annoying. 
I'm probably dumbing that down. If I can speak every language, communicate to anybody that I want, if I can speak languages that you've never heard of, I am the same thing as a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I am the smartest person that has ever existed, if nothing is ever a mystery to me, physics, philosophy, medicine, I can cure things that you never thought possible because I'm way smarter than you. If I have so much faith that I can literally say to that mountain, move, and it gets up and walks over, but I don't have love, it is worth the same amount of stuff that is in my hand right now. I would say those are pretty amazing things. Scripture says not so much. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If I think of others so much more highly than myself that I literally give away everything that I have, that I am destitute because I have given away so much, if I put my body to the hazard, if I get injuries for the cause of Christ, but I don't have love, I'm nothing because love is the foundational aspect of worship. That foundational aspect gives all the other tasks that we call worship their fundamental meaning. Without love, we are nothing. Without love, we can't worship. But we still don't know what it looks like. So the Apostle Paul continues. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others, and it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Our familiarity with this passage leads us to gloss over it. We think of this as the marriage passage because this is what, in our culture, we read at weddings. But this is not the marriage passage. This is the worship passage. This is what it looks like to worship a risen Savior. This is the appropriate response to the goodness that is God. And I hope you read that and you went, oh, no. Patience? I have kids. (laughs) Keeps no record of wrongs? I have a journal of everybody that's ever wronged me so I can pray for their forgiveness. (laughs) Always hopes? Everybody lose hope. Never fails? Who could possibly love like this? Who could possibly worship if this is the standard of worship? Who could possibly meet this criterion? Not me. Bam! Now we've got the appropriate mindset for worship. Because we often think of the opposite of love as hate or indifference. But the opposite of love is pride. The opposite of love is pride. 
If you look in there, you and I cannot love that way. But Jesus does. And so the first step of worship is to humbly admit, I can't do that. And the second step is to go, God, you're going to have to help me out here. You're going to have to help me out. And now we see the superiority of this method of worship because where the previous method drives us away from God, this drives us screaming to him. And so we see one of the ways in which love is superior is it brings us to the end of ourselves. It brings us to humility. And I promise God is waiting for us to pray this prayer. He is waiting for us to say, Dad, Give me eyes that see what you see. Give me ears that hear what you hear. Give me a heart that breaks for what your heart breaks for. Let me love like you love. Through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and put my spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees. And right there, we hear that list again. But what was the greatest decree? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. I will put it in you to obey the greatest commandment. And I will move you to be careful to keep my laws. What was the greatest laws? Love God, love others, love yourself. I will put it in you if you will come to me. And this is echoed throughout the entire New Testament. In Philippians, Paul writes, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to the day to complete it. He writes again, he says, the, the old is gone and the new has come. He writes in Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? That's what we're asking for. We're not asking for a checklist. We are asking for nothing less than radical spiritual transformation because that is what the greatness of God demands in response. That is appropriate worship, radical spiritual transformation because invitation to worship is an invitation to love in every aspect of your life. It is an invitation to love like he does, not under our own power, not because we have it in us, but because he desires to draw us to him so that he can put that in us. So my friends, let our worship not be a summation of a carefully drawn checklist through which we either experience pride or shame. Let's in humility bring what God has asked. A love that is appropriate in the level of his greatness. Let us worship in spirit and truth. Let us respond by humbly saying, Dad, let me love like you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you that while we are faithless, you are faithful. We thank you that while we always try to change the rules, you take us back every time we come back. We thank you that it's not on us to do the impossible, but you are a God that does the impossible for breakfast. I ask that now all of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ would return to our first love. I ask that we would humbly come to you and say, let me love like you. I ask for those who don't know you yet 
that they would experience your great love and in response become yours and claim the name of Jesus Christ. That we can celebrate their adoption into the family and we have more worshipers with which to inherit this earth, to send your kingdom out into our homes, in our schools, and the places you have drawn us to. Lord, let us not just be a people that worships you in vain with our mouths, but worships you with a new heart, drawn in love. We ask these things by the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.